Isn't it neat? That's one of the one of the only good things about getting old that I can think of is that you get to look back down the halls of time and watch how people have grown and in particularly grown to serve the Lord. It's quite a blessing. Well, it's good to see that those of you that strayed off into different parts of the world have come back. Join us here at the house of the Lord. And uh, understand that uh, community groups are back in swing, back in session. So I uh, appreciate your you taking advantage of that opportunity to grow in community and to press in in the togetherness and the oneness of the saints of God. And um, I actually missed our very first meeting because of a prior commitment, but I missed that. And I understand I missed a very important announcement as well. But um, it's good to see everybody here this morning. And I trust that you, unlike Kevin, have your Bibles with you. I'm really ragging on him this morning for some reason, but he's not even here. He stepped out. I have to say it again when he comes back. But we are in Matthew chapter 13, primarily 14. But in chapter 13... Jesus is teaching the masses and he is using parables, another means or method to convey spiritual truth. He's using parables to teach them in particularly about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God about? The king is has come and there's a kingdom and he wants people to know how it works. And in particular, he shared the teaching of the parable of the sower. And we learned in that parable last week that a sower sows the seed. The seed goes out, but it falls on different kinds of soils. And the seed represents the gospel of saving grace. The soils represent the hearts of man. And so Jesus is teaching people what to expect when the gospel goes out, the message of the kingdom goes and goes, depending on where it falls. And some of it, he says, will be snatched right away. It won't even have a chance in the soil of some people's hearts. And in other people's hearts, it will be scorched almost as quick as it's snatched. It hangs on there a little bit longer, but then the sun comes out and it scorches it. It does not take root. And then some seed seems to take root and thrive for a short time, but eventually it's choked out with the cares of the world. But out of those four examples, there's one heart where the seed takes takes root because the soil of humility, the soil of faith is there and it's fertile and the gospel grows and grows and grows and bears fruit for the kingdom. And so these are the kind of things that we can expect even today in the kingdom of God. What happens when you share the gospel or or pastors or evangelists go out? We can't always expect that every time the norm is that sometimes it hits those hard hearts that aren't prepared for it. The, the sower's not the problem and the seed is not the problem. It's the soil of the heart. And how many times does the church panic when there are not responses to the gospel and think we need to change the seed because people aren't believing in it the way that we're sharing it? We don't we don't want to fall into that temptation. It's the soil. It's the hearts that need to be changed. This morning, we actually get to look at some practical examples of the responses that people might have to the word of God as we venture in. We'll start in chapter 13, but venture into chapter 14 and watch 
And just like today, just because uh, you may be exposed to Jesus, just because some people in your house may be believers, or just because you go to church, none of these things necessarily mean that you have received the gospel into your heart. As many people resist it and resist it or allow the cares of the world to choke it out. I pray that God would give us ears to hear this morning to equip his saints, to exalt God, to edify one another and to evangelize the lost. As we step back and take a big look at the picture of chapter 14, and that's kind of what I've been doing recently. I'm trying to take larger chunks of Matthew at one time and look at them from a big picture perspective. But what we see is that the 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 to the. To the degree of what we believe about Christ is how it is played out in our worship. Based on the intensity of what we believe about him, it comes out in the way we worship him. And then again, not so much if we have a small amount of faith or if our belief in him is not accurate or if we never really cared to take the time to understand how Christ has revealed himself to us. But what we truly believe about him becomes evident in the way we worship him. So let's look at the latter part of 13, beginning in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. There's an example of bad soil. Word of God didn't even take root. So Jesus, Matthew has told us that he's been ministering in this area of Galilee, northern parts of Israel, for almost two years now. He's done many things. He's preached Many sermons he has displayed his glory and his power. We also know that this is about the transition time where Jesus uh, backs off from ministering to the masses a little bit so that he can spend concentrated time equipping, mentoring and and discipling the twelve because they will carry on. They will be the sowers and continue to cast the seed of the gospel message. In this passage, we find him in his hometown. So he is ministering in a place, the place that he grew up. And just like you, if you if you were raised in a place and you live there pretty much most your life, you know them, they know you. And so this crowd knows him well enough to even know his all the people in his family. They know who his mother is, his father is, and he's got four little brothers. And he has an unknown number of sisters. And the way that he is teaching them, they're astonished. Because he's, he's approaching Scripture in a way that they're not 
used to. They're not familiar with. And he's he's expositing God's word and looking at it from an angle that that's boggling their minds. I never thought of it like that. Where is he coming up with this? What Bible college did this guy go to? There's no teacher around here that teaches like that or approaches God's word from from that avenue of grace or speaks about it as if he's the king. Where did he get his education? He couldn't have got it from around here because I know his family. I I know the teaching that he would sit under. He sat in our synagogues. Perhaps even some of their children were raised together. Maybe Jesus was friends with some of their children. Friends with some of them. And they are absolutely astonished at his his style and the content of what he's saying as he opens up God's word in a way that they had never been exposed to before. And you would think that that kind of impact and astonishment obviously would have their hearts turning in droves to him. It's just the opposite. Rather than letting the astonishment turn to faith and belief. They are offended. They take offense. Because I would venture to say, as they realize, wow, this is this is awesome stuff. This is good content. I've never heard the message of the Bible from this perspective before. Then they realize and and it tickles their ears and it's it's they're enthralled with it. But then they realize, well, wait a minute. If what he says is true, I got to change because I've never heard it like this before. And I'm pretty smug in, in the way I'm worshiping God. But if what this preacher, this rabbi says about the kingdom of God and how we have to empty ourselves out and how we're beggars and how we need to be willing to be peacemakers and and be willing to even be persecuted. I thought I had my act together. So the astonishment and the thrallment that they first were exposed to turns into an offense because they don't want to have to change their hearts because their hearts are rebellious. They had never heard the message in a way that confronted them. They are used to hearing it in a way that conforms to their lifestyle, conforms to their works righteousness. So immediately, and sometimes that happens to us as well. And we, we might have... We might have thought about believing in Christ. We may have seen his miraculous heart transforming work in a family member or a friend. And we think, wow, that's awesome. But then when you actually realize the content of the gospel and that not only does he want to change that heart, but he wants to change our heart, which requires repentance, which requires self-denial and giving up the things of the world. Then it's not so fun anymore. It's fun for you, maybe. And so they took offense because of their unbelief. It's it's a bad soil. Scratching their heads at how he could be so incredible and yet hardening their hearts at the same time refusing. They took offense at him. The way that Jesus describes this in verse 57 is that basically they are denying him the honor that is due him. There's a certain honor. It's, 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 it's a right of his. It's absolutely due him based on who he is, based on the message of forgiveness and grace, based on the mercy and the blessings and the healings that he has performed. There's a certain amount of honor that is due him 
for who he is. And they are depriving that. They are withholding that from him. That's how sinful their hearts are. Sometimes we know that there's something in us and there's something about God that absolutely deserves action and decision on our end. He deserves it because of who he is and we withhold it from him. And that's what's taking place in his own town. People that he grew up with. And they know him. Maybe even Joseph worked on some of their wood projects. As a carpenter, maybe Jesus worked on some of their projects or that maybe it was a family affair. Jesus had little brothers. Can you imagine? You can just hear Mary saying now, can you imagine being Jesus's one of Jesus's little brothers? Why can't you be more like your big brother? That's what Michael Jr., the comedian, says. I wonder if she ever said that. So they're blinded by the lack of. Of humility. And this is the typical Jewish mindset in that area. In that day. And we see it today as well. I mean, these were considered the people of God of that day in that in that area. They represented God. And yet they've closed their hearts because they have their own system. They don't think that this is due God. They think more because of their works that God owes them. That's what legalism does to us. And it it perverts our whole mindset and our whole approach to God. Whereas the gospel says, no, you have to come realizing that you're a debtor to mercy. We just sang it. You are absolutely in debt and you have nothing to offer me. Your works are as filthy rags. So their theology of works righteousness calls them to have no room for Christ. You see, what we believe comes out in the way we honor him. What we truly believe and how we believe it comes out in how we worship him. And we see what is not happening in this passage. Then Matthew moves on now in chapter 14. There's something else that was going on. During this time in a little different part of the region. Verse 1. At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants. This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And because John had been saying to him. It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Herod. The Herods are an infamous family of rulers in the days of the Bible, in the days 
of Palestine around the time, a little before and even after Jesus. And so because they ruled in their, in basically that area where the Bible takes place, where redemption takes place, they're in the Bible quite a bit in the New Testament. The Herods were powerful rulers. They were strong rulers. They were cunning and wise and they were dangerous and they were ruthless. This is Herod Antipas, named after the area or the region that he's ruling over. And just like the Herod that sought to kill Jesus when he was a little baby, this Herod is very dangerous. And this Herod is a little bit of everything. He's a, he's, a, he's a little bit superstitious. He's a little bit religious. He has seemingly just enough knowledge of things to get himself into trouble. So the Herods find themselves in Scripture quite a bit, but it's never for anything good. He thinks that the reports he's hearing about the miracles, this, this Superman Jesus who's teaching and healing and doing things that man's not supposed to be able to do, this must be some kind of supernatural sign. He's feeling guilt-ridden, perhaps. This must be John the Baptist. He has come back. He thinks he has risen from the dead and God has given him some kind of powers. And then Matthew takes us back. Well, in order for John the Baptist to be risen, obviously he must have been killed. And indeed he was. And so Matthew takes us back in history a little bit and tells us what happened to John the Baptist. He had a lot of followers. A lot of people liked him, but not everybody liked him. The Herods did not like him. This Herod did not like him. And so he was imprisoned. He was in prison because he was speaking against sin. He was speaking against a lifestyle that was very displeasing to God. Now, the Herods have a little knowledge of the law and they have a little knowledge of God. And so uh, they are um, distant relatives of the Jews through Esau. So they have bits and pieces of what's going on. And it's said that Herod sometimes would listen to John preach about the kingdom, and he was enthralled with it. He was tickled by it. Like a lot of us today, uh, we, we like the, the interesting parts of the Bible, and they, they are enthralling to us, but when, when we understand the parts that talk about, no, actually God is real, and He's due your whole life and all your worship, that's where we turn the page. So Herod would listen to John. But one of the things that John would say to Herod was that he would call him out about his relationship with this woman that he was sleeping with, Herodias. And it gets real colorful, and I won't go into all the detail, but it's, it's an incestuous and an adulterous situation. He basically takes his brother's wife as his own, and the daughter comes along with her. But John is telling him that what he is doing is not lawful. It's not lawful according to who or according to what? Because he's the king and he's the ruler. So he can make up at least partially, as long as Rome's okay with some of it, he can do his own thing, right? And live his own life and have his own laws about marriage. But John, according to the word of God, the law of God says that is unlawful. So John's talking about God is the authority, whereas Herod is using man as the authority. It's not right. See, John is a man of God. 
He's speaking against these things based on the truths that we find in the Word of God. This is a twisted situation because John, uh, Herod, though he's the king and he's, and he's the ruler and he's not supposed to be scared of anybody, he's scared of the people. That's why he didn't have John put to death to begin with. But he finds an opportunity to do it through this uh, birthday party. Did they have birthday parties back in the days of Jesus? Apparently they did. And this was a big celebration in all the wrong kind of ways. Every wrong thing that you can have at your birthday party was at Herod's birthday party. And it wasn't a good ending, at least for the people of God. And so Herodias' daughter dances before Herod. He's enthralled by that, makes an oath as a king that he has to fulfill. She, through the mother's insistence or persuasion. So Herod says, whatever you wish, blank check. And through the mother's persuasion, it's John the Baptist to be put to death. And so the daughter Salome says, yeah, I, I, uh, I just have one thing. I've always wanted this uh, for your birthday. I've always wanted this. And it's John the Baptist's head on a platter. That's mom speaking. It's a gruesome, wicked thing. And that's what she gets. We don't know what happened to the head. We know later that the body was respectfully taken by the disciples and buried by John's disciples. But he's beheaded. By an executioner. But what was he martyred for? He was martyred for being a man of God. That speaks the truth. That's why he was martyred. He's a man of God. A man of God. A person of God. Speaks truth as truth. And calls out sin as sin. A man of God knows God's word to do that. A man of God obeys God rather than man. It's interesting. The freedom that John the Baptist had. And the bondage that Herod was in. Herod was in the bondage of the fear of man. You ever been there? Do you know how the fear of man, we, we think we're in control of our lives, but really the fear of man controls us and, and causes us to do things that we would have never done and then prevents us from doing things that we know we should do? That wasn't true with John the Baptist. He knew what he was all about. He knew his story, his history, his purpose. And it was to proclaim the truths of God, no matter what the atmosphere was or no matter how dangerous. He can't back down from that. He has perfect freedom to do that. He's not scared to do that. And sometimes, though we have perfect freedom to do that, it may mean our lives. We might lose something. It might be just something of value. It might be something physical. It might be a head. A calling sin, sin in any culture can be costly. Like what A.T. Robertson says, he says it costs John his head, but it is better to have a head like John the Baptist and lose it than to have an ordinary head and keep it. That's a kingdom perspective that turns the world right side up, really. He was a preacher. So the soil there... In the palace of Herod, there's no place for the gospel. Hearts are hard. They're rebellious. The sin chokes it out. They had the truth right there in the form of John the Baptist. Every opportunity, the grace was there. The preaching went forth from the faithful servant. And the hearts rejected it. And then we see Matthew continues in verse 13. We read a very familiar story. 
about the feeding of the 5,000. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. A lot of people. So at least at least a thousand people per loaf of bread. And was a, just a little more than a, a third of fish of a fish fed well over 5,000 People, very familiar story. The different gospel writers approach it from a different perspective. Matthew approaches it, I think, from the effect that this miracle had on the disciples. Jesus is teaching them. He's training them. He's, he's grooming them. So he responds and speaks things very specifically to serve that purpose. So Matthew looks and, and treats us to what the disciples are thinking as all of this goes down. The first thing we see from that perspective is uh, the disciples are thinking in one direction and Jesus is thinking in another. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. He, he feels their pain. And that's what our Savior does. No matter what it is, even a hunger pain. Of course, he is the bread of life and he satisfies the pain and the hunger and the thirst of the soul. He's the manna from heaven. But even the physical needs. The disciples are assessing the situation from a very rational, a very logical perspective. We're out in the middle of nowhere. It's getting really late. My stomach's starting to growl. I'm hearing a lot of other stomachs starting to growl. And when you get this many people out in a place and there's nothing to eat, it can be a bad scene because people get hangry. So we don't want that to happen. And the merciful, compassionate thing to do is send them away. Let them know, look, we don't have lunch for you guys. You need, you're need you on your own. And yet Jesus is compassionate. He sees the crowds. He sees the weariness of the crowds. And even though he himself is weary, and he has been ministering and laboring many, many days, months without end, He's been carrying people's burdens. He's got the burden of knowing people's hearts and knowing that many among the masses are going to reject him. And they're saying, feed me now. And they're John's gospel in John's gospel. They're about ready to crown him as king when he gives him this food. And those same people, not so long after that, are yelling, crucify him. He's carrying this burden. He's also carrying the burden of the loss of a kingdom player. John, his cousin, a brother. Somebody who understood the message of the kingdom and was was courageous enough to bring it out into the world. A very important player. He's grieving the loss of this. 
and yet he has compassion. They say, send him home. He says, no. And then I think he strategically asks him, so if we're not going to send him home, what do you have? And again, they look at the means, they look at the resources. Well, what we have here to work with is not a whole lot. Two fish and five loaves. But Jesus' affection is stirred. And I think he asks them that on purpose. Because they're looking at the wrong resources. Sometimes we think God calls us to something and we're trying to figure out the Christian life. And we look at what God has provided and God provided those two fish and five loaves. But we forget to look at the king. We forget to look at the provider. We forget that, well, if he provided this, maybe he can do more. So, so Jesus is grooming the disciples. Yeah, you have what's in the field. You have what's in your hands. But that's not all you have when it comes to kingdom ministry. And that's not the only way that Jesus fulfills the needs of people. So they're learning the lesson of how sufficient their provider is. He is more than sufficient. Now, there were prophets in the Old Testament. <clears throat> Elijah, you had the oil, the jar of oil that never ended. And Elijah fed a hundred hungry, hungry men. But this far surpasses anything that any man of God has ever done in feeding this many people. So Christ is more than sufficient to meet the needs. They brought the best that they can do. This is all we have. It's the best we can do. And a lot of times the best we can do, we see it's insufficient. But remember the provider. Whatever situation you're in, you look at how much money's in the account. I remember when Lisa and I went through uh, Bible college. We didn't know how financially we were going to do it. And really the books just didn't line up with the resources that we had at hand. But God had a different plan. He had different ways and different means of providing very logically and practically to him. But it kind of baffled our minds. How are we doing this? God has resources. He is more than sufficient to provide for us what we need to serve him. And not only does he meet the needs for us, but look what else he is teaching the disciples. That he can also meet the need through them. They got the privilege, though Jesus did the miracle. He gave them the baskets and they handed out the blessing. And that's a picture of us today as disciples of Christ. He he didn't need those two fish. He didn't need those five loaves. He didn't need those disciples to hand them out. They got to be a part of kingdom work. And we get to be a part of kingdom work in blessing people as we spread the gospel. As we confront sin, and confronting sin is a, is a hard thing to do, but sometimes God calls us to it. And there's a lot of sin in our culture, by the way, to confront today. And it's easy to back down, and it, it could, could be very costly. But if you think about it, if we don't tell them the truth, then what opportunity do they ever have to have ever heard it to begin with for any conviction to come in the first place? So we're not doing people a favor by backing off of things that they don't know. They need the law. They need the grace. They need to know the message and the story that they are a part of in this world because Christ is king. He was here first. And they are welcome members. And there is a certain honor that is due Christ. 
I hope that it's our heart's desire to grow in such a way that every day we give God more honor because he is due so much. He is so glorious and so worthy. May we make that our effort. So the disciples, God uses them and they get to hand out to these people the food that they needed. We get to hand people the manna from heaven. We get to be used in our homes, in our workplace, in school, among our friends to bring the blessings of God, whatever he may prompt our heart or whatever we already find in this word. It is a privilege and God wants to use us as kingdom people to establish his kingdom. Can you imagine being a part of that kind of miracle? You know, it's sad that Jesus said in his hometown that he didn't do any more works there. See, hard hearts and refusing God means a stifling or a holding back of what God is willing to do if our hearts believe. If we are willing to be his servants and to give, if we're willing to be obedient and embrace the things of God. Then we see the glory and the manifestation of God. Where is our heart this morning? Is it a flame? Or even now, are we thinking about things of the world? Things that do not give us eternal life. Where is our heart this morning? What place does Christ have in it? Because we have been called to be the sowers of the seed. We have been called to be those that bring the blessings of the kingdom of heaven on earth. We are it. There's no plan B. With the church. The people of Christ. And then we close this chapter with another very familiar story. This chapter is filled with familiar stories. And that's the walking of water. What can we learn from this? Let's look at verse 32. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord. If it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. This is often a favorite story. A lot of children's books and other books have been written about what has taken place here. And I have just a few minutes. So, again, I'm going to kind of take it from a big perspective. We learn here that fear can actually be an opportunity for us to grow in faith because that's what Jesus turned this into. Though Peter was gripped by fear and sinking, 
This opportunity was used to grow the disciples' faith in their adoration. To see the kind of Savior, to see the kind of King and God that Jesus is. And so they grew as they saw His character. And there are just some important things, truths that we need to really have nailed down that I want us to consider as we close in this passage here that jump out of us. And first of all, the truth that this one of the truths that this passage teaches is that Jesus is absolutely sovereign. And I'm not just talking about the event of walking on the water. This, the whole setup was a sovereign act. Jesus is by himself. He, he, on perp, he purposely sent them ahead so that he could dismiss the crowds and then spend time in prayer. See, Jesus is our prayer team. We, we, sometimes we get discouraged at the lack of a heart and zeal for prayer among ourselves, and rightly so. But remember, Jesus is an interceder. interceder. He is our prayer team. So there are things happening whether we pray or not. But Jesus is praying. He's having alone time. The whole thing was sovereignly divine, divinely set up. So there they are. The wind is against them. The storm that has come against them. It's all to teach them. The lesson that they need to learn in order to carry the gospel, in order to serve, to serve the purpose that Jesus has for them. This opposition that they're facing, this, the fear that they're experiencing in their hearts, is sovereignly set up. Even the time, the first watch that they were sent away, I think it was between seven, six and nine at, at night, I believe. So about dark, and then it's between three and six in the morning, the fourth watch. So about six hours, Jesus has been gone. And all this time, they've been facing waves and wind and they're getting farther and farther away from him. So it's just building and building and building. And they have every right to be scared. Especially when on top of a storm, it's not every day that you see a man-like figure walking across the water. So their hearts are gripped. Think they're out of control and, and scared. God is sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. Not only does he bring the storms and cause the storms sometimes to teach us something about his character that we need to know that we don't know in our in our zone of comfort. So he brings storms to grow us, but he also calms storms to grow us. And so this opportunity, fear turned in to faith. Also, Jesus is present. Jesus was there when he was on the mountain praying, but he was there in bodily form. He's, he's always with them. We're, we're, we're never outside the protection and watch of God. As this sovereignly took place. So he says in verse 27, take heart, it's I. Don't be, don't be afraid. It is I, I am, I'm here. And he was always with them, but their faith, they, they needed to have the faith to know that they could... Uh, press on without his physical presence. But his physical presence had that calming effect with his, um, with his omnipresence. And it calmed his fears. Since it's you, if it's you, my fears are calm. I have the courage to take heart and to step out on the water. This really is about what Jesus can do. See, that's where the faith comes from. It's not about how much faith Peter can muster up. Wow, he had enough faith to walk on water. It's because of how faithful the object is, Christ. Our faith can never rise above the faithfulness of the object that it believes in. Because Christ is so faithful. That's where faith 
can take us. So God was faithful. And when Peter stopped seeing the faithfulness of Christ and he put his eyes back on the circumstances that he was a part of, and they were real, the water was real, the wind was real, he began to sink. And what a lesson for us. It's, it's not about our circumstances. It's about Christ, his love for us, how deep the Father's love for us. And then we see another very important truth that Jesus is our peace. And here's what the flesh tells us. The flesh lies to us. And the flesh says, I am out of control and I'm restless. See, Jesus, uh, Peter was out of control and he was restless. And we feel like we, I cannot be at peace. My heart will not be at peace until this relationship is back in peace or until my job is, is right. I have to get my circumstances back in control. Then my heart and soul will finally be at peace. And so we fervently work when scripture teaches, no, your heart can be at peace and can rest because God is in control. You see the difference? And we turn to ourselves and Scripture says, no, turn to God. That's where your rest comes from. That's where your peace comes from. And they, as Jesus gets into the boat, the storm stops. And of course, they are just beside themselves. (laughs) What kind of man is this? And their hearts are filled with with the kind of worship that I wish my heart stayed at that place 24-7. Just absolute awe. Man, the awesomeness that exudes from Him. Truly, says they worshipped Him. Truly, you are the Son of God. Because I know that when I can have that perspective, that no matter what the storms are around me, man, my heart is right. My soul is satisfied with leftover, when my heart turns to Him and adores Him in that way. I trust and pray that if your heart is longing and thirsting for Christ this morning, that today will be the day when you give yet weary soul rest and empty yourself and repent of being in control And invite Christ, beg for Christ to come into your heart. Beg for forgiveness of sins, that you might live a life of grace and a life of joy. And I think as believers, there's a challenge here. We've been fed by God's word in the Gospel of Matthew. That we need to be the worshipers. We're the salt. We're the light. And based on the intensity and what we believe and how we believe in Christ, it's coming out. In the way we worship. So what is the way we worship? May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. And we're going to transition now, I think, to uh, celebrating our teachers and our graduates. Shirley.